All right, let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, we do pray for um, this morning as we uh, hopefully finish up uh, this doctrinal statement, but um, Lord, we, we know that our mission is to um, proclaim the gospel um, to uh, the nations and to those around us. Lord, you've sovereignly placed us in this community, in this area. Um, we pray that you would help us to interact with our neighbors and our family and um, uh, just pray for opportunities there or even things like at the gas station. Lord, I pray for uh, just um, uh, thank you for the opportunity Steve has there. Pray for Mario in particular. Then even he might even show up this morning, and uh, we might be able to welcome him. Um, Lord, we we do just pray for for wisdom and how to reach out to those around us. That you would give us opportunities um, and help us to be faithful when they come. Um, oh Lord, we we want to exalt you. We want to honor you. Um, help us even now as we um, talk about the doctrinal statement this morning. That you would. You'd be honored. We have a good discussion, and um, we pray these things in your name. Amen. So I hope that we will be able to finish this morning. Um, there's still the, uh, well, I'll explain when I get there, but just to give you a heads up, what we're going to do after this, so we might start as early as next week, uh, what we're going to be doing is uh, starting into um, a time talking about how to read the scriptures better. Um, so how do we do that? What are the kind of rules that we go by when we interpret the scriptures and kind of practicing that together? Uh, but even before we do that, it'll, we'll kind of preface that with, um, just kind of rehashing, all right, um, here's how God's word was produced. Here's how we know what we have in the canon, um, in the 66 books. Uh, so rehearsing some of those things, um, that's just handy to know, uh, that history and, um, and understand how God's um, both put together his word and preserved it. Um, and so that'll kind of preface before we get into talking about, uh, okay, let's practice reading the scriptures better together. So that's where we're headed next in equipping hour. Uh, we'll, uh, like I said, that might be as early as next week. Let's see how we do today. Um, so in the doctrinal statement, we're on the section on last things. Um, and we talked, there's kind of two components to this. There's the what you call personal eschatology, personal last things, what, how does it apply to each individual? So we talked about that last week under the heading of death. Um, and then you've got kind of the bigger picture uh, eschatology of uh, here's how everything's going to happen. Um, here's how everything's supposed to, by what we understand the scriptures to say, uh, to happen. Now I'll say this before we read any farther. This stuff is hard uh, because you basically have to take all the threads of scripture and try to make sense of uh, how they all tie together, okay? So as we walk through this, keep the big picture. What we're trying to articulate here is essentially this. Jesus is going to come back in um, bodily form. Uh, he's going to reign in a millennial kingdom for a thousand years. Uh, there's going to be resurrection and judgment in the midst of all of this. That's basically what a lot of this is trying to articulate. It gets a little more specific than that but keep the big picture. Um, like if that's basically your conception, Jesus is going to come back. He's physically going to reign. There's a future for Israel. That's the other piece that we believe, right? There's a future for Israel. Uh, there's going to be a resurrection and a judgment. If you have those basically in your mind, that's what we're trying to articulate here. The specifics and the details, sometimes they're not as clear as we would like them to be. Um, so um, that's, it's, it's a struggle when we articulate some of these things. So let's go ahead and walk through it. The tribulation period. We believe that the righteous judgments of God will be poured out upon an unbelieving world. 
and these ju- that these judgments will be climaxed by the physical return of Christ in glory to the earth. That time the Old Testament and tribulation saints will be raised and the living will be judged. The per- this period includes the 70th week of Daniel's prophecy. So Daniel 9 is a big, is a big um, hinge piece uh, for this, where Daniel articulates for Israel... There's going to be these 69 weeks, well, there's going to be seven weeks and then 62 weeks, which adds up to 69, and then you're going to have this last week, and basically Daniel gives this list. We can go ahead and turn there if you want. Let's go ahead and turn there because it's such a key passage. Turn to Daniel 9. Uh, Daniel 9, 24. And it says this, 70 weeks, now I'll I'll remind you, this chapter starts with Daniel saying, hey, we're getting into the 70 years of exile that Jeremiah prophesied. When's all this, Lord, we know we've sinned, we know we deserve this, but also show mercy to your people. When is this all going to be done? And essentially Daniel gets the the answer. There's going to be a lot more time before everything kind of comes to its culmination. There was a return of Israel, but not in the fullest extent prophesied earlier. So um, you get the 70 weeks prophecy. Daniel 9, 24, 70 weeks are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, uh, to put an end to, your, to end to sin and to atone for iniquity, to bring about an everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and rebuild and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks, then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed, and he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week he shall put an end to the sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Now, we're not going to go through all the details of that, but suffice it to say, you see the list of what's going to be done, and basically that 70th week says, all right, that's when all the kingdom's going to come, that's when Israel's going to be restored, Uh, all the promises essentially are going to happen and be culminated, Uh, and so that seventh week is what we call kind of this tribulation period. Part of it is discipline for Israel, uh, and then part of it, of course, is judgment on the nations. So uh, that's what this is talking about, the tribulation period, uh, where there's both um, uh, another way that's referred to in Scripture is the time of Jacob's trouble. Um, there's going to be kind of this chastisement, this final chastisement of Israel, but also uh, a judgment for the nations. Um, and so we believe in that. That's going to happen with those judgments that you see unfurled in Revelation uh, being uh Uh, poured out okay Uh, the second coming and the millennial reign we believe that after the tribulation period christ will come to the earth to occupy the throne of david um, and establish his messianic kingdom for a thousand years on earth so we believe that christ has all authority in heaven on earth he is the rightful king and yet he has not taken up that messianic reign upon the earth so he is the rightful king Um, He shares right now, Revelation talks about he shares the throne with his father, but uh, we don't believe that he has yet taken up his messianic reign in the sense of over Israel, 
and then you know that that blessing flooding to all the nations of the world. Um, during this time, the resurrected saints will reign with him over Israel and all the nations of the earth. This reign will be preceded by the overthrow of the Antichrist and the false prophet and by the removal of Satan from the world or the temporary binding of Satan from the world, um, bound for that thousand years. That's referenced in Revelation 20. We believe that the kingdom itself will be the fulfillment of God's promise to Israel to restore them to the land that they forfeited through their disobedience. The result of their disobedience was that Israel was temporarily set aside, but will again be uh, awakened through repentance to enter into the land of blessing. And you see in places like Jeremiah 31, where it's, uh, well, not even just Jeremiah 31, kind of Jeremiah 30 through 33, there's pretty explicit and permanent promises given to Israel for the land. That's why, what's part of the reason that we believe there's a future for Israel is like, uh, the promises are so explicit and so much repeated that I, um, it, uh, we don't seem justified to say, well, that now gets fulfilled in the church or something like that. So we believe in a future for Israel. You also see that in Romans 11, uh, where Paul talks about, um, uh, you know, um, well, what about the Gentiles? What's going on with Israel? And he kind of outlays the program of what's going to happen. It seems like the program from here on out is God's saving a bunch of Gentiles to make Israel jealous so that they eventually accept their Messiah. That's basically the program of how things are supposed to go. That still hasn't happened yet because we're looking for a full-blown uh, generation of all Israel to be saved. So we believe that um, basically it, it, it seems like the whole nation to a person at one point in future history is going to be saved. That's never happened yet. Some people would also say that, well, it's as, maybe it's not every single individual, but it's uh, so many of them as it's, you could count it as the whole nation. Um, either way, uh, there's dispute on that, um, but uh, that seems to kind of be the program that's laid out in Revel uh, Romans 11. We believe at this time that our Lord's reign will be characterized by harmony, justice, peace, righteousness, and long life, and will be brought to an end with the release of Satan. Any, well... Any questions on um, the, those, those sections? And I'll be honest, like there's a lot of the, the timing that I'm still like, I don't know. And I don't even know if scripture gives us all of, the, all of what we might want to know uh, for how it's all going to play out. But again, keep the big picture in, in mind. Um, so any questions um, on that? Well, so the 70 years uh, for Jeremiah, well, no, you're, 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 they tie together kind of. So the 70 years for exile, that's like 586, and then you've got Cyrus's decree to restore the temple. Um, there's dispute as to whether the 70 weeks, because it kind of gives a, a marker, a general marker, like when the city is going to be rebuilt, um, and it's going to be rebuilt in time of trouble. Um, people dispute on whether the clock starts from the restoration of the temple or whether it, um, which was during Zerubbabel's time, so like the start of Ezra, when it's talking about Zerubbabel and they, 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 they build the altar again they don't, and they rebuild uh, Zerubbabel's temple. So people dispute whether it's starting from that point or um, a guy named Harold Honer um, who wrote kind of in the 70s, uh, late 70s, early 80s. He, he did a lot of work on the timeline side of this, and he's got some really convincing arguments to say that um, the clock starts when you're rebuilding the wall of Jerusalem, 
um, when you're talking about rebuilding the temple, and he's got all the, like, the calculations and everything uh, for that working out. Um, and I, I would lean towards that, that it's more like when Nehemiah is restoring the wall and that sort of a thing, where it's not just the temple, it's the city. Um, and if it, it seems to fit, like, it's a troubled time. You read Ezra and Nehemiah, and it's, it's a troubled time that's happening. Uh, and then if you calculate it all out, then it seems to work out that, um, that uh, what, he talks, what Daniel talks about of the anointed one being cut off, that that corresponds to Jesus entering Jerusalem in that, that last week. So um, that seems to match fairly well. Again, there's lots of scholars that kind of dispute on those things. The point is that part, part of what Jesus did in that first coming, um, uh, that's, that's, in my view, that's the anointed one getting cut off, right, and having nothing, right? Um, that's exactly what we're seeing in Matthew, right? Like, he's there, he's supposed to, he is the messianic king, but he's not, Israel's not repenting, um, and so then he gets cut off and has nothing, but then eventually, right, um, we get that 70th week when that, um, things are going to come back, so. Uh, Honer, um, oh, I'm trying to spell it for you, um, it's H O. It's either H O E or H E O. I would know if I wrote it out. Um, H N E R. Harold Honer. Uh, I think it's included. I've got a journal article on it um, that I could hand off to you, but he's got this little book called Chronological Aspects in the Life of Christ. Um, and it walks through a lot of things, including. Uh, laying out an argument for the birth year of Christ uh, and how long Christ's ministry lasted, things like that that you don't normally, you just kind of assume and don't think about. And he makes some good arguments. Um, he holds to an AD 33 crucifixion of Jesus, which I also would hold to. I think it's a better option. And he gives him some convincing arguments there. So H-O-E-H-N-E-R. Okay. I think I was right. Yeah. pre-tribulation. There is somewhere else in this document that mentions a, a rapture. And there's, so the word rapture comes from 1 Thessalonians 4, um, and it's this word um, harpazo in Greek, where it's like literally you're snatched, right? That's, that's all that that means. So the argument is, um, the question is, does that happen before the tribulation? That's the pre-tribulation view. Does it happen in the middle, mid-tribulation, or does it happen after, post? If you're a post, then essentially what you're saying is, is that uh, God resurrects the saints, and they meet him in the sky, and they come right back down to earth. So it's kind of like the vision of the people welcoming a king into the city. So there's, there's um, people kind of argue that way. Um, it's a hard position one way or the other. We do believe there is a rapture in the sense that there is a gathering uh, to the Lord in the air. That's clear from 1 Thessalonians 4. As far as when, that's difficult. Um, and there's a lot of people that disagree on that. So, so it's kind of like if we're thinking about teaching as um, elders on that position, um, we want to leave enough latitude on that specific issue um, to say, well... Uh, there's arguments for each one. Uh, let's and it's it's one of those niggly details that's not not important, but it's pretty far down the list as far as level of importance. Um, and so, 
Uh, there was somewhere, I can't remember, maybe it's not in this section, or maybe it's a little bit later, uh, or um, it might have been earlier under Christ, um, but there is the mention of the word rapture, and we do believe in that. All that means is that, okay, um, at some point, Christ is going to snatch his people up to himself, whether that's to the point where, like, hey, we're welcoming you back, now we're coming right back down to earth, or whether it's, like, snatched up for that seven-year period, which is the pre-tribulation view, they're going to get snatched up. So what that exactly looks like, um, we're not specifying in this document. So, yeah. Uh, anything else? Okay. The judgment of the lost. Uh, we believe that following the release of Satan after the thousand-year reign of Christ, Satan will deceive the nations of the earth and gather them to battle against the saints and the beloved city, of which at which time Satan and his army will be devoured by fire from heaven. Following this, Satan will be thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, whereupon Christ, who is the judge of all men, will resurrect and judge the great and small of the great white throne judgment. We believe that the resurrection of the unsaved dead to judgment will be a physical resurrection, we talked about this last week, whereupon receiving their condemnation, they will be committed to an eternal conscious punishment and torment, really, in the lake of fire. Now, so you might ask, sometimes people ask the question, well, wait a minute, so you got a resurrection at the beginning of the thousand-year reign, that's Old Testament saints, it seems like it also includes believers like us now, um, so where, do, like, where does the rebellion come from? Right, because it's like, well, wait a minute. You've got, you've got um, Old Testament saints, tribulation saints. You've got. Um, it seems like everyone's glorified. So, wh what? Where do these children come from? Well, there are people that are going to survive, believers that are going to survive the tribulation, and they're going to not have glorified bodies. It seems this is the only way this seems to work, and you're going to have their. Uh, evidently, they're going to have kids. The people who are glorified doesn't seem like they're going to have kids anymore, right? But the people who have unglorified bodies, they're going to have kids, and eventually those kids will, um, at some point in the future, Satan will deceive them uh, to cause this, this final rebellion. That's the best way you can kind of make sense of, of how that works. Because otherwise it's like weird, because like everyone's raised and it's resurrected, and there's a judgment, and then you've got a thousand years, and then there's a rebellion, and Satan's deceiving the nations again. So how does that work? It only seems to work if you think of the people that have survived the tribulation who are believers, but then their kids um, turn away somehow, even with Christ on the earth. There's probably other scenarios, too, that people have thought of um, that I'm not rec recognizing right now. But anyway, uh, anything else up through that point? Okay, eternity. We believe that after the closing of the millennium, the temporary release of Satan and the final judgment, the saved will enter the eternal state of glory with God, after which the elements of this earth are to be dissolved and replaced with a new earth, uh, wherein only righteousness dwells. Uh, following this, the heavenly city will come down out of heaven uh, and will be a dwelling place of the saints where they will enjoy forever fellowship with God and one another. Our Lord Jesus Christ, having fulfilled his redemptive mission, will then deliver up the kingdom to God the Father, that in all spheres the triune God may reign forever and ever. So um, there's dispute uh, about whether the earth 
and the heavens are going to be destroyed in the fullest sense of that word, or if they're going to be like remade, like renewed. There's actually a debate about that. Um, depends on how you view what Second Peter is talking about. Um, is he talking about like a complete just everything's gone and we're starting fresh? Or um, Revelation, it kind of almost seems like the picture is a renewal, a restoration of this, this earth and this heavens. Uh, it's not a hill to die on one way or the other. What is important to recognize is that it is a physical heavens and physical earth, and the, the picture is heaven coming down to earth in the final state. We often kind of just have this conception that, oh yeah, I'm going to go off and float in the clouds forever. No, um, the, the vision that Jesus gives us in Revelation um, is, uh, is very tangible, very physical, um, and uh, there's really a merging of those two spheres of the heavens and the earth, where God and is on the heavens. That's why I think that phrase in Matthew, the kingdom of the heavens, it's really that idea of the kingdom from the heavens. It's authorized by God, but it's also, it's trying to articulate what you even see in Daniel, like this, 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 this uh, kingdom is coming down from the heavens to the earth, uh, which is exactly what you see in Revelation. Yes, Ned? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's the dispute, right? Like, very uh, faithful people take it that way that like things are just going to get wiped out, and then there's going to be a re like a full-on new creation period. But there's also um, a, arguments um, that are made to say, well, really, the language that gets used for uh, the destruction or the recreation, however you want to say that, is more along the lines of restoration, that you've got the same earth and the same heavens, but they're restored. Kind of like you, you think about it like this, right? Imagine that um, you've got a 1962 Ford pickup, right? And it's been sitting in the field, and it's, that thing's rusted out. It's not going to start. It's not going to run. It's, um, but uh, do you, is it, you make it new, by restoring it back to original conditions or even better, right? Uh, some people argue that's what God's going to do with the, um, this earth and this heavens, right? Like, it's not going to be completely destroyed or annihilated. It's going to be um, renewed. Um, but then on the other side, that um, there's, you take some of the language, and it seems pretty strong. Like, things are going to... There's definitely going to be a burning up of some kind. Now, what that... Uh, does that mean... Total annihilation, or does it just mean a burning such that after that, that there's a restoration? Um, and good people differ um, on those one way or the other. Doesn't A lot of this stuff, it's not like it doesn't matter. It does. Eschatology does matter, because eschatology is given in Scripture. You see this in Daniel. You see this in Revelation. To encourage perseverance um, and to essentially say to God's people, Keep holding on. It's worth it. Um, things, are, things look really bad now. There's lots of injustice now, but God is going to remake everything. So eschatology is important because it gives hope. Um, it gives encouragement. We don't usually think about eschatology that way. We think of it as like, this is scary stuff, and it is scary stuff, and it is motivating to proclaim the gospel, but it shouldn't be scary for us. Yes, there could be pain. There will be pain and suffering for the church. There's no doubt about that. And yet, um, that's why Jesus tells us ahead of time, like, hey, look at what's coming in the future, and uh, let that motivate you to faithfulness now, 
um, and, and, um, and perseverance. So there's a lot of this stuff, like the niggly details like of timing, it's like, it's not even too important to really know that, because as long as you know, like we said, uh, there's going to be a resurrection, there's going to be a thousand-year reign, there's a future for Israel, uh, there's going to be a new heavens and the new earth, in which we get to dwell with the Father, Son, and Spirit for all eternity and to enjoy them, then um, God will take care of the details. Um, it's not there are. It, it, it's not that God doesn't give uh, temporal markers and ideas of like this is going to come before this, and sure, it's helpful to a point to know that stuff. So I'm not I'm not downplaying that. It's just remember what eschatology is for. It's not so you have your timeline in order. It's so that you hold on and you persevere um, in the faith till the end. So um, you just want to keep that that mindset going. So uh, anything else on? eschatology stuff. You will notice in the member statement, uh, it's way shrunk down from this because uh, it's hard stuff. Uh, basically, oh, <laughs> if you're a believer, what you want to uh, affirm is you want to affirm, yeah, there's a physical resurrection um, and there's a, there's a judgment coming. Um, Christ is going to rule on the earth. And there's, um, as far as like, if you don't believe in a physical resurrection and um, and a, uh, a future judgment, then there's problems, um, right? Um, but uh, beyond that, uh, there, are, there are things that Scripture addresses, but we're not going to require that of, of members to ascribe to. So, any questions? Okay, so uh, we now enter the section on positions on specific issues. Uh, and... I will just say this, um, well, yeah, I, what I'm going to do, I'm actually going to go in reverse order here, or at least I'm going to start with the last thing first, but remember the positions on specific issues. This is a section of this document that is supposed to probably grow more over time because there are things that we're going to encounter uh, in our society that are more time-bound rather than time-less. Um, we think of the, the, the doctrinal statement proper, uh, both for the member statement and the elder statement. They're things that are supposed to be timeless truths, uh, whereas we encounter things in our society that, well, the Scripture has something to say about that, and we need to take positions on it. So um, the section on marriage, divorce, remarriage, and sexual immorality those are all sections um, from our old member doctrinal statement, so they are reproduced here. Essentially, uh, and you guys have probably already read those sections, uh, you can reread them again. Essentially, we're just trying to articulate, especially over against homosexuality and gender, uh, transgender stuff, um, but uh, just, just trying to articulate um, a, a biblical view of marriage and sexuality. It's a little um, interesting with divorce and remarriage, of course, and a lot of those things, like if a situation ever came up where there's a divorce remarriage issue, a lot of that stuff becomes case by case and trying to apply the biblical principles that we see in places like 1 Corinthians 7 and what Jesus says in the Gospels uh, and what God says elsewhere in the scriptures to that situation. You'll notice under the section for sexual immorality, uh, there's a lot under there. So when the Bible talks about sexual immorality, it's not just talking about adultery. 
In fact, you can see that last week in Matthew, this, the section on Matthew, Jesus actually lists adultery and sexual immorality in, two di- in, in separate places in that list. Sexual immorality is a broad term that covers a lot of different stuff, and you can see some of the stuff that is included under that heading that we see in places like Leviticus and also in the New Testament um, for, for that. Now, the one I want to go back to, and you don't actually have this in the written version that you have, is on substance abuse. So what you have is the old version of substance abuse, and since we printed this out and started talking about this, the elders revisited that section, Um, and so uh, you're going to just have to listen up on this one. I can get you a copy, a written copy on it if you want it, but we revisited substance abuse because um, if you look at that, the one you have in your hands, it's very targeted towards marijuana use, which is not bad. It's good to address that issue, and you will hear in the new version that it is addressed. Uh, But it's like, well, there's a lot of other substances you could abuse, right? (laughs) And we see that. And so we wanted a broader statement uh, to address, kind of be more all-encompassing. So I'm going to read this for you, um, and then you can ask questions about it. And then if you want the written form, uh, we'll eventually have a couple copies of this just sitting out in the hall for anyone to kind of pick up and look at and say, hey, what do you elders teach? Uh, but if you want that section just specifically that I'm going to read to you right now, um, you, we can do that. So, substance abuse. We believe that everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. That's 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 5. However, the scriptures readily recognize that as a consequence of the fall, mankind regularly abuses God's good creation in sinful ways. Scripture affirms that man is a complex physical and spiritual unity. 2 Corinthians 4.16, there's an inner man, there's an outer man, and how they intertwine and interact, they're complicated. One, uh, the spiritual affects the physical, and the physical affects the spiritual. Um, so that becomes into play when we start thinking of abusing substances for the body. There can be a spiritual effect to that. Uh, scripture affirms that man is a complex physical and spiritual unity composed of many aspects. But God holds the individual person responsible to use both material and immaterial components of their nature as a stewardship for God's glory and to love him. So all of who you are, heart, soul, mind, um, strength, all of who you are is supposed to be used in a stewardship for God. Whether you're talking the physical component, your outer man, or whether you're talking about the non-tangible um, inner man. Either one is supposed to be used as a stewardship uh, for God's glory. As a creature, let alone, and this is what this next section says, Christians have a double responsibility to use their bodies and souls for stewardship since they are not only a creature responsible to their creator, but also an adopted child redeemed through the priceless sacrifice of Jesus Christ. As part of this stewardship, Christians are called to be sober-minded, which implies more than not being intoxicated, but not less. In other words, when you read, uh, and there's a, I've got 1 Thessalonians 5, 4 through 11 down, um, here and 1 Peter 1, 13, but when you read the scripture say, don't uh, be sober-minded, that goes beyond uh, not just being drunk or intoxicated. Uh, it means more than that, but it certainly doesn't mean less than that, right? 
you can't be sober-minded if you're intoxicated. Um, but being sober-minded means more than just not being intoxicated. Um, so we're, we're saying that. Uh, and that's a positive command, to be sober-minded, versus just saying, don't do this. It's saying, be this, be sober-minded. Um, drunkenness is sinful and foolish as it constitutes the loss of control of one's mental and physical faculties. You can see that in Proverbs. Uh, you can see that in a couple other places in the New Testament, Galatians 5, 19 through 21, in the list of the works of the flesh, drunkenness is part of that. Uh, Ephesians 5, 18, um, that's probably the most familiar, don't be drunk by means of wine, uh, but be uh, uh, but be filled by means of the Spirit. And that's, an, that's a, it's a corporate command, but it has individual implications. Enslavement and addiction to such substances is also sinful and foolish. Uh, so not merely that being intoxicated, but you become enslaved and addicted. Um, the, word, the Bible doesn't have the word addiction, but it does articulate the idea of enslavement and enslavement to um, substances. Um, so we would call addiction enslavement. You're enslaved to this thing. You're enslaved to your sin. You're enslaved to your own um, bodily desires. Um, or, you know, you're, the, the word we, um, that our culture uses is dependence, right? But really, that's just saying that you, you, you've... And the problem is with this, right? Like, you, you have an enslavement and addiction. It does change you physiologically to where you, <laughs> you want that stuff even more, right? So that's the problem. Uh, but we're not to be enslaved and addicted to such things that, um, uh, th that are abusing such substances. Although the Bible only seems to address the abuse of alcohol as a substance, the principles for why the scriptures prohibit intoxication with alcohol also prohibit the use of any substance that would lead to similar results, though different chemical processes might be involved in the body. So there is no scripture that deals with marijuana. There's no scripture that deals with uh, psychedelic mushrooms. Um, there's, no, there, there's none of that, right? So what do we have to do? It's not that the scripture doesn't have something to say to that. It just says that now you have to do it through principles, right? So that's why we talk about there's a positive command to be sober-minded, and there's a negative command, don't be drunk. Now, uh, I don't know how much you know about this, but let's just take the issue of marijuana. Um, the physical processes for becoming high are much different than becoming drunk. They are. Uh, the physical process is much different. So you gotta be careful. Uh, you're, you can't directly equate the two, but you can say that God desires us to use our bodies, this is why we framed it in this way, in such a way that um, we're being sober-minded, we're honoring him, and we're stewarding all our capacities for God. So we acknowledge that there is, um, there's a different chemical process involved, and what we're saying is, yeah, 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 there's a different chemical process involved, and yet the principles of being sober-minded um, and not being drunk apply even though there's a different chemical process being involved. And that's helpful to acknowledge. Um, so what are we including here? This would include legal or illegal. Of course, this is illegal, you're going against the state, but now we see, especially in Oregon, a lot of these things that were illegal are now legal, but that doesn't mean you should go ahead and just partake, um, right? So this would include legal or illegal drug use as well as the use of marijuana. Now, uh, if you want a good little book on marijuana in reference to the Christian, 
There's a good little book I picked up recently and read that became a foundation of a lot of this statement called Cannabis and the Christian, and it's really well written because it helps you understand all that's involved um, rather than just say, ah, marijuana is just bad or the cannabis plant is just bad. And that explains a lot of what I'm going to say here. In reference to marijuana, it is acknowledged that though the cannabis plant, so cannabis just refers to the plant, like the physical plant that grows, okay? Is the cannabis plant bad? No, it, it can't be because it's part of God's creation. But like we started with, that doesn't mean that every use of that plant is valid, right? And so this is where you get into a little bit of nuance. Um, it's acknowledged that though the cannabis plant is often associated with marijuana and the psychoactive effects of THC. THC is the stuff that gets you high. And it's, way, it's gotten way, 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 way more concentrated over the years. Um, and it's, it's, uh, it's, it's bred, essentially, to be concentrated uh, at this stage of the game. So we say that um, it is acknowledged that though the cannabis plant is often associated with marijuana and the psychoactive effects of the THC, that's the stuff that gets you high, that's the stuff you don't want to do, the plant itself is part of God's good creation. It has many other legitimate and medicinal uses that are still being explored, and this is true. It's a very complex plant, and there's a lot of medical research that's being done uh, that how do you use it in a legitimate way. Uh, in particular, CBD, which you've probably seen around and heard about, CBD is a non-psychoactive product from the cannabis plant, and so intoxication is not a concern with CBD products. So you think about something like a CBD oil or a hand rub or whatever, that stuff you can buy over the counter, that has no psychoactive effects, which means it's not affecting your mind and it's not causing you to not be sober-minded, if you think about it like that. We also acknowledge that there are medical situations in which a mind-altering drug is prescribed for acute pain relief and that these are legitimate uses. I think Steve just benefited from some of those um, recently, didn't you, Steve, right? Uh, some of those... Did it, has it affected your mind? <laughs> Did it affect your mind? I don't know if I'm a safe person. <laughs> yeah. But what was the situation? The situation was acute pain relief, right? Like, poor Steve couldn't, you know, just be <laughs> without some of that stuff. You're was. You aren't now. But, but, so that's a situation in which there's a psychoactive drug but it's an acute medical situation, and we believe that that's ethically fine, right? Now, the trouble is, is when you bring that over into chronic situations and it becomes a, a long-term dependency, which is a lot of what's going on or has gone on in the U.S., right? Like, they prescribe you all this stuff for pain relief, and then people have a tough time getting off of them, and then they become addicted and enslaved, right? So when the acute pain is gone, right? So you start with acute pain, but then you transition over into long-term use. So this isn't just, this is kind of a, a, a tricky issue, but there's some line where you cross. Um, acute pain relief, yeah. Um, however, the Christian as a stewardship of their body for God's honor, ought to know the risks with such medication and ought to avoid a long-term enslaving use of such substances. For example, opioids, which is a lot of the prescription drug stuff. Apart from the considerations of intoxication and enslavement, addiction, uh, a person must also consider the long-term and possibly irreversible effects of substances on the body and the mind, which are a stewardship from God's honor. So there's 
a lot going on in there, but it's trying to articulate a more nuanced position, right? Is it okay to take an opioid when you've got acute pain? We would say yes. In fact, Proverbs 31, six through seven, go ahead and turn there. This is an interesting verse. Proverbs 31, 6 and 7. This is before you get to the excellent wife kind of stuff, right? So um, Proverbs 31, 6 and 7. So we're talking about King Lemuel here and how he should act as a ruler. But notice uh, Proverbs 31, 6 and 7. Give strong drink to the one who is perishing and wine to those who are in bitter distress. Let them drink and forget their poverty and remember their misery no more. So to my mind, that's saying... There's situations in life where, uh, yeah, you're gonna not you're you're actually giving a mind-numbing, uh, mind-altering substance to someone because of the acuteness of their distress. That's really the basis of why we would say that acute situations uh, where you're taking uh, a mind-altering drug to ease pain is legitimate scripturally. Um, but you got to be careful because. Uh, you come off of that, you get off, it's hard to get off of that stuff, right? Um, and it can become, and it has become in a lot of cases in the U.S., uh, it's become uh, a chronic issue where it's not because of acute pain use, but it's because, you know, I've become habituated, my body has become habituated to that stuff. So it's kind of a nuanced discussion, uh, and there's going to be cases that are, uh, of course, gray in all of that, but we wanted to incorporate kind of a broader view of what substance abuse and what is the legitimate or not legitimate use of those things. So well, you can always figure out a corner case where it's like, uh, that's hard to answer, I don't know. That's where when situations like this arise, uh, it might be helpful to consult with, um, well, the elders and kind of say, hey, is this, wh what about this use? Is that, uh, is that legitimate or illegitimate? And we have to rely on God's wisdom in a lot of these things, right? So what we're trying to articulate here is principles, okay? Uh, like I said, I can print off the hard copy of that if you want to read over that a little bit more, but uh, any questions based on what we've articulated? Yes, Pat. Right. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there's, there's, so I think there, uh, there's minuscule, um, like there's an inverse relationship between THC and CBD in the plant. The more THC you have, the less CBD you have and vice versa. Um, so, it does, um, so the stuff that gets produced, and again, you still need to be aware, some of it can have minuscule amounts of THC, but not enough to like, enough evidently <laughs> to make you test uh, positive, but not enough to ha bring you into a mind altering state. Yeah, because of probably how the test is designed to look at certain things. So, but what we're articulating is sober-mindedness and uh, or lack thereof. That's kind of the issue on that stuff. So, yeah. Any other questions on that? And again, I, I'm not claiming to be an expert on on that stuff. But that little book, uh, when it was, it was like looking at good studies, <laughs> um, you know, medical studies. And so if you're really interested in that or you need to read up on that, uh, it was helpful for me.
called Cannabis and the Christian by Todd Miles. Um, but it's a good little book. So um, any other questions on the issue? Yes, Ken. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, right. Right. I'm just saying that that's like how people in the US, there's a big problem with like, it started out as a legitimate medical issue and then it became something, uh, it became uh, addiction, right? And so there's some line that you cross in there where it's like, you gotta be really careful about it. It's valid in an acute situation, but in an ongoing basis, it's, um, it can be. And I think you just said acute means ongoing. Yeah. Yeah, again, it's going to be a case-by-case case thing. Like, what does each situation look like? And what's wise, right? What are, you, what are you convinced of from the scriptures and what's wise and not wise? The overarching principle is who we are internally and externally and knowing that what I do physiologically has an effect on my spirit in some mystery. Like, when I feel crummy from, when I'm sick, like, I struggle. <laughs> I struggle more. Um, but, um, and vice versa, right? When I'm down um, spiritually, right, that affects even my body. It can. Things like stress, et cetera, right? Um, so a lot of this stuff, there's principles. And that's, that's, that's what, like, if you think about law and, the, and, and commands in the scriptures, they give you a grid. So they give you, like, this grid, and they give you grid points to work off of. But a lot of life is used in like the little square that the grid doesn't cover. So what do you have to do? You have to lean on the grid points and you have to, that's what wisdom is. That's what Proverbs is all about, right? Is how do you live life in those gray areas, right? And so you try to make the best decision you can that you believe will honor the Lord. Um, and a lot of times they'll get into uh, really tricky scenarios. So um, that it's valid to have an abundance of counselors to help you walk through that, so... Um, yeah. Anything else before we end? I was going to say regarding the elderly page, I wanted to say that. Um, the really difficult is if you can't take them now, but you can come on now. Yeah. What we don't want to do is we don't want to say, oh, that's just bad in any circumstance, right? Because the scripture doesn't allow us, I mean, back to what we were talking about last week, the scripture doesn't allow us to say that, but these are situations that does have principles, and there's got to be a lot of wisdom as we navigate through those things, so... Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Yeah, so you see a legitimate use and then and then you got Justin who's dealing with illegitimate uses. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
Messed up world, but God is good. Um, yeah. Yeah. And you think about people, let's say, you know, 100, 200 years ago, they don't have that. They're just, you just got to grin and bear it or just die from the pain. Yeah. <laughs> they all died young. <laughs> so, all right, let's pray. Father, we do acknowledge that um, the world is not as you designed it to be, it's not as it should be, and we long for the new heavens and the new earth um, where uh, everything will be perfect, justice will reign, peace will reign, um, and you will reign, and we will enjoy you as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit um, for all eternity. Uh, give us wisdom in, as we encounter a variety of things in life um, uh, where they don't fall into the the grid points of uh, the commands you've given us, and we have to apply wisdom. Give us great wisdom, O Lord God, because we want to honor you. Above all, we want to honor you with our bodies, with our minds, with our capacities, uh, with all of it, O Lord God. So we just pray that you would give grace. Um, we pray now as we come for the gathering of your people uh, to sing um, your praises, to sing the truth, to sing the gospel, to um, preach the gospel, to um, to to fellowship with one another and to speak God's truth to one another. Or just pray that you would help us, that you would be honored, that you would encourage your people, that you would challenge um, those who need to be challenged, that you would encourage those who need to be encouraged, and um, pray that you would bless our morning. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.